This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today we're looking at encephalitis. Encephalitis is inflammation of the brain parenchyma, and it differs from meningitis and encephalopathy. Meningitis is associated with inflammation of the meninges. Encephalopathy is altered level of consciousness for 24 or more hours without evidence of CNS inflammation. Now, encephalitis can present in a variety of different ways, but all of it comes back to that altered brain function. Patients can present with aphasia, seizures, focal neurologic deficits, altered mental status, personality changes, and movement disorders. Women now have a higher documented incidence of encephalitis than compared to men, primarily because of increased recognition of autoimmune causes. Mortality ranges between 5 and 20%, And unfortunately, morbidity can also be severe. Patients who recover can experience decreased IQ, behavior changes, and sustained neurologic deficits. Some non-reversible poor prognostic factors include things like advanced age, immunocompromised state, and comorbidities. Seizures, cerebral edema, and thrombocytopenia are also associated with poor prognosis, but these are reversible. There are several different types of encephalitis. There's infectious, non-infectious, or post-infectious. Infection of the CNS is primarily caused by a bloodstream infection, resulting in direct invasion of tissue by the pathogens. This leads to inflammation of the brain parenchyma, primarily due to cytokine release. When it comes to infectious causes, by far the most common cause in the U.S. is HSV-1. Worldwide, it's Japanese encephalitis. Other common infectious causes include zoster, EBV, cytomegalovirus, enterovirus, bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and helminths. Anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is a very common autoimmune cause of encephalitis, and it might now be one of the most common causes of encephalitis. We'll be talking about this in a separate section. There's also tick-borne encephalitis. This is a CNS infection transmitted to humans by tick bites. It is more common in adults than children. It's endemic in Europe and Asia, and it usually occurs between April and November. Patients can present with meningitis, meningoencephalitis, or encephalitis, and it may result in paralysis. As I mentioned, patients can present in a variety of different ways. Most report a prodromal flu-like illness. They then can present with a variety of neurologic findings like altered mental status, seizures, and behavior changes. Signs of meningeal irritation like neck stiffness and photophobia may also be present. Patients also often have fevers. Symptoms are usually present for over 24 hours at the time of presentation. For your history, inquire about ill close contacts. Also perform an extensive travel and vaccination history. Finally, look closely for any evidence of immunocompromise. Unfortunately, your exam is often nonspecific besides confusion. The neurologic exam may reveal deficits like cranial nerve palsies, seizures, hemiparesis, or flaccid paralysis, especially if the spinal cord is involved. Rash may be present in certain cases, especially those due to zoster or HSV. There are some findings that can point you in a specific direction. Lower cranial nerve palsies like disorders of the 9th through 12th cranial nerves, you need to think about rhomboencephalitis. This is inflammation of the brainstem or cerebellum. If the patient presents with hearing changes, then think about mumps encephalitis. HIV is a potential cause of encephalitis, but it's rarely the primary cause. You do need to think about associated infections like mycobacteria and fungi. When it comes to diagnosis, there are several diagnostic criteria created by the International Encephalitis Consortium. There's a major criterion which involves altered mental status for over 24 hours without an alternative cause. 
For minor criteria, you need two for possible and three for probable or confirmed encephalitis. These include fever within 72 hours of presentation, seizures, a CSF leukocyte count of five or greater, neuroimaging suggestive encephalitis, a new onset focal neurologic deficit, or an EEG suggestive of encephalitis. For confirmed cases, you need evidence of infection with a microorganism known to cause encephalitis, evidence of an autoimmune condition associated with encephalitis, or finally a brain biopsy. When it comes to your ED workup, there are several important tests. These include neuroimaging and a lumbar puncture. For most patients, you can start with a non-contrast head CT. Your imaging modality of choice is going to be an MRI with and without contrast with flare sequences. This best evaluates for inflammation. Of note, brain imaging is really important. That CT head non-contrast can help you exclude alternative causes like an intracranial mass. It also helps you assess for mass effect and to evaluate for brain changes consistent with encephalitis like temporal lobe changes with HSV1 encephalitis. After imaging, an LP is absolutely essential in these patients. This can help you determine the underlying cause and differentiate meningitis, encephalitis, and encephalopathy. Remember, encephalopathy won't have any evidence of inflammation. Most patients will have a lymphocytic predominance, but a neutrophil predominance may occur in earlier stages of the disease. Patients may also have elevated protein and a normal glucose. An elevated RBC count in the absence of a traumatic tap should raise your suspicion for HSV. Also send that CSF for HSV, PCR, zoster antibodies, and autoimmune testing. EEG is often nonspecific, but it can help you identify seizure or encephalopathic activity. Brain biopsy is usually a last resort in the setting of clinical deterioration or diagnostic uncertainty. Management really focuses on several different components. First, assess the airway breathing and circulation. If the patient isn't protecting the airway, they'll need intubation. If you find evidence of elevated ICP, elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees or more and consider hypertonic saline or mannitol. Avoid hypoxia, hypotension, and also elevated temperatures. Fevers have been associated with increased ICP and subsequent neurologic injuries. If the patient is seizing, stop the seizure with a benzodiazepine. If you fail to stop the seizure with a benzodiazepine, the patient will probably need intubation. Also provide prophylactic therapy for seizures. When it comes to treating the underlying etiology, first provide antibiotics because you can't exclude bacterial etiologies in the ED. Also provide empiricase cyclovir 10 mg per kilogram IV every 8 hours. This reduces morbidity and mortality associated with HSV encephalitis, which is one of the most common causes of encephalitis. I've briefly mentioned several complications already. One of the most important ones is cerebral edema. This can be further complicated by mass effect and cause increased ICP. Another important one is seizures. This can occur in up to 15% of patients with encephalitis. The final one, and one that's really important, is recurrence. HSV encephalitis in particular has been associated with relapse, which might be due to an immune-mediated pathway as opposed to cytotoxic destruction of cells. For disposition, these patients will need admission to the hospital. Most patients will require the ICU due to the need for close monitoring and repeat neurologic evaluations. For the final part of today's podcast, we're going to spend a little time talking about anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. This is a very specific autoimmune-mediated reaction against the NMDA receptor. It leads to downregulation of the receptor that can present as a variety of different psychiatric and neurologic symptoms. It was originally described as a paraneoplastic syndrome and was seen primarily in women with ovarian teratomas. However, since that time, it's been described in those without tumors. 
The disease process can affect all age groups, but it's most common in those less than age 50 and females who account for over 80% of cases. It is now one of the most common causes of encephalitis worldwide. Most cases follow a specific pattern of presentation, including a prodromal phase, a psychotic phase, and finally a neurologic phase. Affected patients are more likely to have seizures, language dysfunction, psychosis, and autonomic instability compared with other causes of encephalitis. Pediatric patients may present with behavioral abnormalities, agitation, insomnia, urinary incontinence, and finally progressive speech deterioration. Now let's walk through these phases. The first phase is the prodromal phase. This is a viral syndrome including fever, malaise, and fatigue. The second is a psychotic phase. Patients will present with delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, and unfortunately, they're often misdiagnosed with their primary psychiatric disorder when they're in this phase. The final phase is the neurologic phase. This is marked by seizures, movement disorders, and autonomic instability, including central hypoventilation. A good way to remember this is the NMDAR mnemonic. This describes that classic presentation. N stands for nonspecific prodrome. M is memory and cognition impairment. D is dystonia and dyskinesias or movement disorders. A is bradycardia and blood pressure abnormalities that marks the autonomic instability. And finally, R is respiratory depression. The workup is similar to other cases of suspected encephalitis, obtain neuroimaging, and an LP. For treatment, if there is a teratoma present, it needs to be removed. Otherwise, First-line therapies include IVIG plus high-dose steroids or plasma exchange. Unfortunately, relapse can occur in about a quarter of patients. Let's cover some take-homes. Encephalitis is defined as brain parenchymal inflammation with associated neurologic dysfunction. It's often coupled with signs of infection like fever and abnormal CSF studies. Several of the most common causes include HSV and anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. All patients with suspected encephalitis will need to be started on empiricus cyclovir and broad-spectrum antibiotics, and they'll also need to be admitted. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.